Hey, what's up, Resonate Church? Uh, happy to see you. So good to see a crowd here, and I know that there's a crowd in the Hayward meeting uh, in the physical building. So glad that you're joining us. And also, if you're joining us online, wherever you are around the globe, hey, we're so glad that you are dialing in. We're praying that the Lord will speak to you today. We're actually in a series uh, called Free Indeed, and we've seen a lot that God has done that God has um, just enabled freedom to many people who have been enslaved by many things. And and, and we've been saying this motto uh, 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 to remind us of the hope that we have right now. Maybe you come to the space and you're like, man, I don't expect to be changed at all. And I hope that you will be changed, not only by your faith, but that God would overwhelm you with the kind of truth, maybe uh, the spirit working in you. And we've been saying this to believe this over and over again. We said every sinner has a past. I mean, every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. Would you say that with me? Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. Man, wouldn't it be great if every sinner like me and you would have a future and a hope? It's so hopeful. And today we're talking about another subject that enslaves us today, and that is the enslavement of worry. Worry. Now, a lot of us worry from time to time, but some of us, we worry constantly. We're constantly worrying about what college we're going to get into or uh, the type of person that we're going to be married. Oh, my gosh, I'm the ripe old age of 31, and I'm not married. My life is ruined. You know, we, we think about, well, what is the, my financial status going to be? What are my kids are going to do? And, and, and am I going to have enough money in the future? Am I saving enough for retirement? Or how about the health of others? Maybe you're concerned about somebody's health or even your own. Whatever it is, you and I are constantly engaged in worry. You know what would help is that we would define worry. And so let me provide a working definition of worry. Worry is a constant preoccupation with an unknown future. You see, that is a constant preoccupation. You can't help but to think about it, about a future that you don't know. So worry stems from being nervous about a preferable future that might not come to pass. So you think about it, and as you do, strangely, oddly, you think that is the most productive thing that you could do. You know, some of you think it's so productive, you'll wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. And you're working, working, thinking, if you worry somehow that is a force or an energy that will move a needle from one way to the next. But you realize worry is not a force. Worry has no power to change things. The worry has no power to cure a disease, yet we do it. In fact, only um, um, 90% of the things they say that we think it's going to happen never happens. It was Mark Twain who said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened. We think about these things. So when you worry, it's kind of like paying for a gym membership that you never go to. Or remember you getting these gift certificates, absorbing an amount of money, and you never cash it in, or the business goes out. You know, or don't you hate that? You're working so hard, and yet there's just no advancement at all. And that's what worry is. In fact, worry has greater side effects. It actually does a lot to your physical health. When we dig further, we see that the word worry is an Anglo-Saxon word to mean strangle. Now, that's a good picture because when we worry, it strangles you spiritually. 
it strangles you emotionally. In fact, some of us, it strangles us physically because research shows that physically, we're, we're, it's detrimental to our bodies. And people who constantly worry experience dizziness and rapid heartbeat, fatigue for some of us, um, uh, sleeplessness. And these things could lead to heart disease, strokes, depression, suicidal ideation, and a host of other diseases. You know, research shows that 75% of all the reasons why we go to the doctor is because of anxiety or worry. 75%. Now, let me show you how this worry works, okay? Um, You know, all my life, I've been drawn to extreme sports, always. You know, uh, when when I was in my 20s, I'm not sure if you know, but I used to be a competitive eater. You know, I used to eat hot dogs for a living, steaks, mayonnaise, butter, whatever it is. You know, I always competed. And then finally, like in my 30s, you know, my wife said, hey, no more of that. Your health is terrible, so you need to stop that. I'm like, well, what am I going to do then? I'm like, why don't you do something physical? So I found a friend that goes to my church that was mountain biking. So he's like, hey, why don't you go mountain biking with me? I'm like, awesome. And my idea of mountain biking was more in my mind a cruiser. You know, like swaying back and forth, ringing your bell, ching, ching, you know, that kind of stuff, right? I thought that. But the first day that he takes me up with a group of people on top of this mountain, and there's a trailhead, and there's a little sign that said El Prieto. I didn't know what it meant, but I later found out it was translated as the dark side. (laughs) And what I thought was this trail was going to be this wide you know, like road where you could just kind of slalom down cruising with your little basket with, you know, your baguette and butter that you're eating with your little Gatorade, whatever. Stop by the picnic and just have a little moment here to appreciate God's creation. And then you keep going. No, it was a single track. The whole width of the trail was about the width of this podium. And it had a bunch of switchbacks. It had little drops and had a bunch of roots and rocks all over it. And he's like, follow me. And he just takes off in a cloud of dust. And so me not knowing where to go, I just started going down, trying to chase him. And I couldn't find him. And soon enough, I ran into every rock, every root, every drop. And I'll be honest, I fell a few times, times a hundred. And so like I, I was a mess. This five mile single track road, I I ended up walking my bike down for most of the time. And finally, when I got down to the bottom, I finally saw ahead of me a group of my friends welcoming me. It was almost like the image of the end of my life. You know, where uh, across the pearly gates, they're like, come on, you almost did it. You're here. Come on, join us. This is awesome. And I cruised down and my friend dared to look at me in the eye and said, "Um, how was it? I mean, if I didn't have cuts, I would have punched them, you know, but I, 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 that was, I hate you. Like, I, I really, really hate you. He's like, why? I'm like, did you see the roots? Did you see the rocks? I hit every single one. He's like, oh, you know what? There, you, I should have told you, but there's only one rule of mountain biking. I'm like, what's that? He's like, whatever you stare at is where your bike goes. You see, wherever you stare at, wherever you're, and so if you want to not hit an object, don't look at it. You got to look beyond it. I'm like, man, that would have been awesome to know at the top of the hill, not the bottom, you know? So let's take that principle all around our campuses. Whatever you stare at is where you go. And that resonates with us today because many of us are worried 
Because the byproduct of our worry is that we are staring at all of the obstacles and we don't know how to look beyond. And so, how are we going to be set free from worry? If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, please turn to James. James chapter 4. And we're going to read a, a section of James that's really, it sounds simple in the beginning, but you'll realize it's pretty profound in meaning. James chapter 4, and if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll pray once again that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. James 4, verse 13 through 17, this is the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday morning. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This passage is actually quite complex and deep in meaning. And my prayer is that the Lord would address you. Let's draw out three things that enslave us to worry and three things that free us from it. So number one, why we are enslaved to worry is that we forget God. You and I forget God. And we see this plainly in this passage. Verse 13, come now who you say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You you see, these people are planning. But God says, instead, in verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, you will live and do this or that. Now, initially, James seems like he's condemning the practice of planning. But this is not what he's saying at all. I mean, because you need to look carefully. He doesn't say, hey, Christians shouldn't say, you know, we'll do this or that. No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is Christians should say instead, if the Lord wills, we should do this or that. And so James is not teaching us to not plan. He said, oh, no, go ahead and plan, but always do it with the Lord in mind. Don't forget the Lord. Always include the Lord. But you know what? You and I, it is so natural for us to forget God. I mean, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night being concerned or worried about something? Yeah, most of us have. Now let me ask you another question. How many of you have been woken up in the middle of the night because of the immense peace of God you're experiencing? Never, right? Because when you're in the peace of God, you are sleeping. <laughs> but, but your worries wake you up. And so wouldn't you say that there's a radically a disproportionate amount of things that we put on our minds and hearts towards worry than rather the things of God? And we naturally gravitate towards giving attention to worry. And this is to be arrogant. That's what James says. Why? Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And he's saying to forget God is boasting. And you might be thinking, man, that's a little bit harsh. But God wants you to know there's almost nothing worse than being forgotten. Why? Because if you're hated, at least you're something. But if you're forgotten, you're a nothing. 
You're nothing. And therefore, one of the greatest themes in the Old Testament, God says, remember me. Remember me. Don't just think of me on Sundays. Don't think of me just before meals. Remember me. Psalm 9, he says, the Lord has made himself known. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands, you see, and all those who forget God. See, that's a correlation. There's a relationship between us thinking we could do it. We don't need God, and therefore we forget God. Then he says to the corollary, but for the needy who remember God, they will not be forgotten. So what does it mean to remember God? It is to need him. It is to depend on him. It is to glorify him, to ascribe glory to him. But the opposite of glory is to forget him and to be independent. So God says, to forget me is to glorify yourself. That's arrogant and that's evil. In fact, Jeremiah 2.32 says, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now, this is one of the most sobering realities of Scripture. You know, I've done a lot of weddings in my lifetime. I've been the pastor for almost 30 years now. And I, I've, I've done many, many, many weddings. I've never done a single wedding where the bride is walking down the aisle all of a sudden says, oh my gosh, I forgot to put my makeup on. Never, not once. Do you know why? Because it's very important for her to look beautiful that day. It is very important for her. It's for, important for everybody. And what God is saying here is you remember the things that are important and therefore no wonder you don't remember me because I'm not important to you. You see the analogy here? You'll never forget your makeup, but you forget me? See, this is a window into our hearts. See, when we worry, we forget God. And this is why James here does not pull any punches when he says in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do, he says, so, so means verse 13 through 16, everything that I'm talking about, so therefore whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. He's calling worry sin. It's an implication of us forgetting God. William Barclay, the great theologian, says there may be greater sins than worry, but certainly there's no more disabling sin. See, what he's saying is when you worry, worry just shuts everything down. It shuts the glory of God. It shuts down the remembrance of God, the existence of God. And therefore, you can't glorify God. Here's the second thing. We assume God's place. Not only do we forget God when we worry, when we do worry, we assume God's place. And this is the way it works. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James says here, if you forget God, you're actually boasting in your arrogance. And by definition, you are assuming then God's place. God's rightful place, because when you make plans without God, you're assuming that on your own, you're able to do everything, that you know everything. You know how it's going to be played out. But God says, well, but how do you know? You're not God. And there's a place in, you know, Augustine's Confessions where he says that we're all made in the image of God and we're made to reflect him and to resemble him. But Augustine says that our sin has distorted us in the way now that we seek to resemble him, but in all the wrong ways. 
in all the wrong ways. In fact, I want you to take a look at this diagram because theologians have over the years have divided the attributes of God into two categories, the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. And the communicable attributes, I mean, and those words are not only used in reference to like viruses, right? Communicable means you could catch it. Incommunicable means that you can't catch it. And so communicable attributes or communicable attributes are attributes that could grow in us, that could be transferred to us from God, like holiness and goodness and wisdom and mercy and grace. Those are all communicable. They could be caught like a virus. And that's why at the height of the pandemic, remember we used to wear those masks? Why? Because we didn't want to catch a very contagious virus. In the same way God is saying, if you draw near to me, because I'm made in, I, I made you in my image, naturally you're going to grow like me. You're going to become like me. You're going to look like me. You're going to reflect me in your wisdom, in your holiness, in your goodness, in your grace. You see, so that is communicable. You could catch it. But secondly, there's incommunicable attributes, and they are attributes that speak to more of the nature of God that we cannot receive or he cannot pass off because the incommunicable attributes are these qualities that only the creator has that is separated from the creation. Those are the difference, right? Well, what are those? Well, they tend to be things that start with the word omni, you know, like, like omniscience, which means he's all-knowing. He knows all things. He knows the past, present, and the future. Or, you know, um, omnip omnipotent or omnipotent, which is that he has no limits. He has all power. Also omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all at once. So he's never rushing to get to some part of the world. He's already there. So this is what Augustine says. He says, we're made in the image of God to reflect him through his communicable attributes like holiness, love, and wisdom. But instead, we say, nah, I don't want your communicable attributes. I want your incommunicable attributes. I want your omnis. I want to be omniscient. I want to be omnipotent. I want to be omnipresent. You know, when you're short on time and you want more time, you're, you're, you're seeking your omnipresence. When you want something to happen, make sure it happens, you're trying to exercise the omnipotent side of the thing that you don't have. Or if you assume and you plan without God and forget God, you, you just are thinking that you know better than God, that you know your plans better and how it should be played out than how God wants it to be played out. And remember, these roots and our desires go back to our original sin in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 4 says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You know what that is? That's omnipotence. For God knows when, to, when you eat of it and your eyes will be opened. What is that? That's omniscience. That's knowing all things. And you will be like God. That is the quality of all omnis. And guess what? They took the bait. So ever since then, instead of trusting our creator, our natural inclination is to trust ourselves. You see, you and I want control. And as a result, number three, we get consumed in worry. Have you tried to stop worrying when you're worrying and somebody comes up to you and says, stop worrying? 
you're like, thanks. <laughs> that does not help at all. We're consumed by them. Why? Do you know what worry is? Let me tell you what wor- your worried is. worry is. It is your frustrated aspiration for incommunicable attributes of God. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. It is your frustrated aspiration. It is your longing. And you're just frustrated that you don't have the omni gifts as God does. You want all the omni stuff, the incommunicable attributes of God. You say, I should have the power. I know what's best for me. It should happen right now. But you're chewed up by worry because deep down you know you cannot make it happen. You know, when you sweat, you have body order. You know, worry is like B.O. You know how? Worry is the B.O. of a false god that's sweating. You see, you sweat. You know that real God doesn't sweat at all? He's not ever worried. He's never anxious. Only false gods do. Why? Because the false gods don't have the power of omnis. We don't have the power of omnis. The only time that we worry and we stink like a false god is when we don't realize, verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Listen, you're a mist. I'm a mist. We can't control anything or know anything. We don't have even the power to stay beyond five seconds. Mists disappear. And worry comes when mists think that they're God's. We're all but a mist. You know, Corey Ten Boom, known for leading courageously in the face of Nazi fascism, she once said, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Are you worried? It's a result of forgetting God and assuming his place, and that's why you're consumed. So how can we be free from worries? Well, remember the mountain biking illustration? Whatever we stare at is the direction we go. And this is why when you're training your 15-year-old how to drive, we say, don't look at obstacles because you're going to veer towards it. Don't look at that accident because you're going to hit the divider. Or don't look at that little skunk. I mean, you're going to run off the road. Don't do that. Constantly look ahead and towards the horizon, right? And so in the same way, How can we find freedom from worries? Well, let's apply this. First, you must stare at God's grace. You must stare at God's grace. Look at verse 13. I love this. Today or tomorrow we will go this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make a profit. Instead, listen, you ought to say this. If the Lord wills, we will live. Now all together, say live. One more time. Say live. Live. If the Lord wills, we will live. It means that the only reason why you and I are here today, right now, breathing, the reason why we're in a worship service or joining from home or wherever you are in the car, the only reason why we're here is because if the Lord wills it, The only reason why I'm here and breathing today is not because I took vitamin gummies. It's not. 
I know you're pumping in hand sanitizers in your hands and your mouth. I know some of you are crazy like that. That is not the reason why you are preserved. Listen, all the kombuchas in the world you could drink, and it will not do enough to sustain you. I mean, that is rotten juice, by the way. You're welcome. Man, you're drinking that, spending a ton of money in Whole Foods, thinking that it's going to extend your life. And yet, if the Lord wills, you will live. And so this is really important for us to hear because the only reason why you and I are here is by the grace of God. Jonathan Edwards, the first thing in the morning, he would say to himself this, I must remember this, that everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly by the mercy and graciousness of the upholding power of God. Now, do you realize what kind of attitude you would have if you really believed that the only reason why you're here is because God's will? God's will, you know? And if you believe this, it would transform everything. You know, I have a little post-it on my desk that basically says, it's all God's grace, it should be far worse. Because wouldn't you agree that your worst day on earth is far better than your best day in hell? Wouldn't you believe, don't you believe that? Your worst day. So he's so gracious. And so when I'm tempted and arrogant to the heights and I say things like, it has to go this way and I'm gonna plan, I say instead, God doesn't owe me anything. It's all God's grace, and he just pulls me down. Or sometimes I'm just really in the valley, right? And I think to myself, you know, it could be far worse. I deserve way worse, but it's all God's grace, so he pulls me up. And grace makes you then impervious to circumstances. And this is why the apostle Paul was able to say, remember last week we learned it. In every situation, I learned the secret of being content. He said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be brought to the heights, So in all of our campuses right now, would you just take a moment to sense God's grace? Just to sense it to say, the only reason why I'm here is because he is gracious to me. And I really deserve far worse. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard a life is right now, you and I deserve worse. And whatever you're going through right now, though it might be incredibly hard, it would be like a vacation compared to hell. It's all God's grace. Even if you're facing death. I did a memorial yesterday morning, right? And I couldn't believe it because we're talking about the future resurrection of the person. And we're we're thinking about her and we're just, I'm just stunned by this. What, What does she do in life to deserve eternal life? What? She just believed. Wow. To have faith. She has eternal life? Man, what, what grace. Do you see how gracious God is to us? It's incredible. Second, stare at God's grace. Also stare at God's attributes. Would you stare at God's attributes? God is omnipotent, all-knowing, which means he's all-wise and knows exactly how your life should go. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, which means your trials cannot hide from him. See, when your trials, when you're going through them, you sometimes feel lonely. You need not to feel lonely because wherever you are, wherever your trials are, he's there also. He's omnipresent. He's also omnipotent. 
which means he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's in control. So he'll apply all that omnipower for your good and ultimately his glory. But the devil's strategy is to get you to forget, just as Adam and Eve did. And the serpent said, you know, God doesn't know what's best. You know what's best. You need to take control. And so we do. So do you see the connection between the original sin and our daily sins? Our daily sins are just a momentary relapse of the original sin. And James points out here the reason why we take matters into our own hands here is we simply don't trust that God is all-powerful and all-loving. This is the only reason why. Now, let me make it clear. This isn't to say that we shouldn't ever plan. Again, remember, James is not against planning. Or we shouldn't, you know, go to a person who's really struggling and grieving through tough things. And we shouldn't go up to them and say, Hakuna Matata. You know, like, what a wonderful phrase. You know, Hakuna Matata, you know, ain't no passing phrase. It means no worry. You know, you shouldn't say that. We should grieve with them. We should meet them where they are. But we shouldn't do it at the expense of putting God first and remembering his attributes, remembering who he is. And therefore, remember when the Israelites in the wilderness of God, you know, God provided manna from the desert. There were nothing to eat. And all of a sudden, it came from the direction that they never thought, literally from heaven. Remember, God instructed them every morning, I'm gonna send you from food from heaven. It was daily bread. But you need to gather enough for that day only. However, when you gather more in fear that you're going to run out and that you don't trust me, he says, guess what? I'm going to come through every time. I'm not going to forget. I'm going to give you your portion every day. But some people didn't trust that. So you know what they did? They started hoarding more just in case God didn't show up the next day. Right? Just like us. Remember we hoarded toilet papers? How stupid was that? We're like the Israelites. We're so dumb, right? I mean, it wasn't food. It was to wipe our butts. I mean, it was terrible. But what does God say? God says, if you gather food today for tomorrow, that food is going to rot. Remember, he said, it's going to rot. So I'm calling you to trust me. I'm training you right now through this food that every day you're going to have to say, if the Lord wills. I will live. That's what the Lord is doing. He does not want to have you be dependent upon yourself or anything else or even circumstances. He says, I'm your circumstance. I'm your Lord. There's nothing more beautiful than me. Look at the lilies of the field. Do you know who colors them? You know who takes care of them? You know why they're beautiful? I clothe all the lilies. It's me who does it. And the question is, would you rather trust yourself or God, are you all-knowing? Are you all-powerful? Do the winds and the waves know your name? I don't think so, but they know his. And they stop when he says stop. We need to trust him and his attributes. So let me give you a practical idea of how to implement this in your life. Ready? This is really practical. So next time you are thinking of just praying and asking for stop, stuff, Stop asking for stuff. Instead, take a moment just to pray his attributes. 
Just his attributes. Just stare at his attributes. Say, God, you're good. Don't say, Lord, would you give me this? Would you give me healing? Would you give me provide? No. Say, no, you're the provider. You're a good, good God. You're righteous. You are just. You are kind. You are merciful to me. You're so gracious to me. Pray all of his attributes. You are powerful. You are all-knowing. Even my hidden doubts that I have in my heart, you know them all. My thoughts cannot hide from you, and I offer them to you. And when you start praying that, what ends up becoming is that when you pray your circumstances, you end up hoping still. But when you pray God's attributes, you have immense assurance. Immense assurance. So let me ask you, what would you rather fill yourself with? Okay, worries or his worth? Fill them with his worth. Remember, what we think of what is what we are filled with. What we stare at is where we go. So will you stare at him and go towards who he is? Lastly, stare at God's assurance. So stare at God's grace, his attributes. Now stare at his assurance. And you say, you know, I, I believe God is all powerful and all knowing and all present, but how do I know that he's going to apply his grace to me, right? After all, didn't we just read verse 14? Let's read again. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Look at how James describes us. For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Now this verse gives me zero assurance at all because all I am is a mist, right? So where does our assurance come from? Well, do you know and do you realize that though you and I are missed and only appear for a little time, do you realize that we'll never vanish? Do you realize that? That's really interesting. How? Well, I'll tell you how. Because Christ became our mist. He became our mist for us, who joyfully denied what? His omnis. Philippians 2, he said, he made himself into nothing. Do you see, Christ became our mist. He became a servant. He became a mist for us so that you and I will not blow away and vanish into thin air, but we be kept solid in the loving, eternal hands of God. This is our God. And there had to be an exchange. And that's why in order for us to be adopted, Christ lived the life that we couldn't, so he became a mist. And so on the cross, instead of us becoming mist, he became one for us. Instead of us being forgotten, which is the worst in what we do to God, he was forgotten. Remember Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you not remembered me? Because that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forgotten. He became nothing. He was utterly and cosmically ignored by the only person in the universe that mattered to him. And it was hell. Don't you see? Jesus was forgotten for us so that we would never be forgotten by God. And this is why. This is why in Isaiah 49 it says, can a woman forget her nursing child? Right? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? The answer is no. There's no way. Well, 
those might sometimes forget because they'll fall asleep sometimes. But guess what? I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. Do you hear that? God has engraved you in the palm of his hand. Now think about this imagery for a second. This is marvelous, and we'll close this way. I mean, he has engraved you in the palm of your hands. You know, in ancient times, sometimes a slave would actually engrave or to tattoo the name of their master onto themselves because of their devotion to the master. But imagine if the master himself, right? Master himself put the slave's name on him as a devotion to the slave. You would think that's preposterous. What master would do that? How kind, how humble, how devoted is he? And the imagery that we're being given here in Isaiah 49 is not a slave doing that for the master. It's not even a master doing that for a slave, but it is a God who is doing that for you. And that's crazy. That's so humbling. That's so gracious. That's so marvelous. What a beautiful imagery. What a beautiful picture. No, it's actually a horrific imagery because it doesn't say that God tattoos our name on our hands. It says it is engraved. It's a very specific word in the Hebrew, meaning that it is engraved with a chisel and a hammer. Do you see? Our names are chiseled with a hammer into God's hands. How does that work? It's a horrible imagery. Somebody taking a hammer and a chisel into the hands of our God. Why? Because it wasn't imagery. It was prophecy. Because the book of Isaiah is a prophetic book aiming towards the Messiah that is to come. And 700 years later, after this prophecy was made, indeed, there was a God that came and opened up his hand, and he not tattooed our names into his palm of his hands. He was engraving our names into the palm of his hands, and nails struck him, and he was nailed to the cross, and on the cross, he suffers for six hours, crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He cried out to his Lord, he, for the joy looking at us, knowing that we will be saved through his salvation. He assures us over and over again. So 700 years later, he dies and he resurrects and he comes to this guy named Thomas because Thomas was a doubter. He was a worrywart. And though all of his friends were saying, hey, don't worry, chill out, Thomas, he has risen. He's like, no, he hasn't. And so Jesus comes to him. And Thomas, it's me. And Thomas still doesn't believe, Lord, no. And what does Jesus offer Thomas as assurance? Oh, his hands. Remember, he offers his hands. It's like, look, I've engraved you. I've, I've done this for you. I died for you. It is me. Look, if there's ever a moment in your life where you feel that in your trials and your worry that God has abandoned you, that he's not omnipresent, just would you remember his grace? Would you remember his attributes? Will you remember his assurance 
that though you and I are missed, he says, no, no, you're, you're no longer missed. Look at my hands, because when the mist comes into the mighty hands of God, the mist is no longer vanished, but it is preserved for eternity. It is preserved for eternity. You are precious in his sight, and he will keep us, preserve us. And that's the ultimate assurance. I went to the cross for you, so no matter what you're going through today, don't worry about it. I know better. I'm all powerful. I have a plan for you. Will you just trust me? Let me give you a last activity. You know, I have a middle son named Brennan, and when he was six years old, he just had through, went through a real tough stint of his life. And so as a dad, I just felt really compassionate to want to encourage him. And so I took him to the toy store. Remember the, those days when there was actually a toy store? And so I, I took him to the toy store, and, and I leaned over, and I said, Brennan, Today's your day. It's your sixth birthday, and you could have anything in the store, literally anything. Sky's the limit, man, as long as the sky is 30 bucks and under. Let's go. <laughs> like, I'm Asian, right? So you know what? Like, let's be reasonable here. 30 bucks or under. And he was excited. He started going down the aisle, searching for stuff and bringing stuff. I'm like, no, pick something better. Oh, pick something cheaper. Whatever it was, I was just kind of helping him pick what he wanted. And he spent like minutes, 10 minutes, 20, 30, 40. And I was just getting bored out of my mind. I was like, kid, you better pick something or you're going to get a spanking. You know, like I was like a spank him on, a, on his birthday. And then finally he comes over to me after an hour and he goes, did you pick something? And he said, no. I'm like, why? And he looks at me. I'll never forget. He says, daddy, you choose for me because you're a good dad and you always make good choices. I was like, what? You see me as a good dad? He's like, yeah. And you think I'll make a good choice for you? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, your $30 went up to $300. <laughs> I'm like, let's go. Hey, you need a car? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go to the dealer right now. It's going to be a minute until you drive, but I'll get you a car right now. Whatever it is, let's go. Can you look at your heavenly father today and say that? Can you look at him and say, you choose for me, my circumstances. You know why? Because you're a good dad. And you always make good choices. You always make good choices for me. The cross, engravement in his hand. What a choice. It's something that you and I would have never chosen. But he did for us. You know why? Because he's a good dad. And he's a good, good father who makes good, good choices. Let's trust him today. Let's pray. Father, help us no matter what we're going through today. Instead of staring at the worry, that we would stare at the grace of God. That the only reason why we're here is because of your grace. And the, uh, just the attributes of who you are, that you are omnipotent, you are all wise, you are all powerful, you are omnipresent. There is not a trial that could hide from your presence. And we believe, Lord, that you're a good, good God that always applies all of his omnis for your glory and for our good. And so teach us today as we go to look at you today in the face of any circumstance and say, you're a good, good dad. You choose for me because you always make good choices. 
Thank you, Jesus, for showing us. Thank you for assuring us through the cross. You're marvelous. You are worthy of honor and our worship. We pray in the matchless name of our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's give him glory. All right.